this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, speaking of the union, this is a union-made episode. It's got the stamp of approval from the union. This is a union member. He's been here before. He's back again. Eric Peterson. Welcome back to the show. You were just here like two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we did our our Garage Rock Roundtable, and you you carried us on your shoulders, like like uh, like the guy <laughs> carrying things on his shoulders and with the statue. Yes, you, you did some serious Atlas. work. Yeah, yes, thank yeah. you, thank you. The You're Atlas the Atlas of. of gr- yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, I would be remiss if I did not mention that we have a second special guest, first time, long time as they say in the radio world. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Jason Ziak's offspring, Ms. Zora Ziak. Welcome, Zora. Hi, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> and she is the manager of the hopper. Right. Yes. People don't know this, but we've been involved in child labor for some, chi- some time now. <laughs> and uh, it works out really great. I don't know why people are opposed to it. I mean... How, when did you start? When you were 11? Um, I think I started like the month after I turned 12. Month after you turned 12. All right. Yeah, it was so probably she, a legal thing. She's legal. It's, okay. it's all good, Tim. I'm legal. Yeah, we're good. In we're Texas, good. you can. We're in Texas. I mean, she can... that's all legal down there. Right. right. No, I mean, they don't care. So just make sure to start your resume now and to put social media managing manager starting at that time. Right. That's right. Back end development. <laughs> UIX uh, Dat- SQL. Dat- database management. There you go. Database management. Perfect. Yes, exactly. So, Eric, for this episode, would you like to share? I mean, there's been so many episodes before. There's a wide swath of albums you've brought to us. I can only imagine that you have brought to this audience um, something that will be in line with um, your action rock. Uh, picks or your or your punk or your rockbilly or no maybe will you go in a different direction share with us and the audience what you picked so i picked the one album from october of 1992 by a band called four non-blondes the album is bigger better faster more nice cd yes. art and everything cd yeah. art well and if people are watching the live stream this has one of those cards that holds out mm-hmm. oh got the lyrics all the lyrics yep so did you tiny, get that tiny before lyrics. the single um i don't probably i i'm sure that that i heard the single on the radio and i got the album did anybody escape my, this single when it came out i don't think so no it was it was ubiquitous it was what's interesting i don't know if you were like this jay because obviously we both know the song but I thought this happened later in the decade. Me too. I did not realize that this album came out in 92. I thought it was like 94, maybe. Me too. Uh, but this was actually October of, of 92. 
Yeah, and one of the things I want to point out before we even get into things is that looking at the liner notes, that some of these songs are written back as far as 1989. So in a lot of ways, this is not a 1992 alternative record. This is a record that has songs from 89, 90, 91, 92. So imagining the landscape of that time period, many of these songs were written during kind of the proto-alternative era. Right. Yes. Zora, had you heard the song What's Up uh, before prepping? Okay. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure where I heard it, but I have, yes. Okay. So it um, is still ubiquitous. Still ubiquitous <laughs> to this day. It just it's just out in the ether. You're out shopping at uh what's the what the Piggly Wiggly down there? What do you got down there, Tex in Texas? H E B. H E B. H E B. Uh let's talk Wiggly. a little history of the band. History of the band. Because this band only has one record, and this is it. This is a one and done. This I don't know if we talked about this on our one and done episode uh, when we did a roundtable a couple years ago about bands that only put out one record, but this band should definitely be included. The original lineup for this band was Linda Perry, who was brought in because the other members were like kind of forming a band, and they were looking for a singer, and they saw Linda Perry performing and said, hey, you're a singer, and she said, literally said i know (laughs) (laughs) and then their band was formed it was uh shauna hall was the original guitarist christina or krista hillhouse was bass a bass bass (laughs) (laughs) who played the trout uh (laughs) trout mask replica uh bass and backing vocals um and then uh linda perry on lead vocals and rhythm guitar and dawn uh, Richardson on drums. Now, there was some shakeup in the guitar slot. Um, Shauna Hill, or excuse me, Shauna Hall, while they were in the studio recording this record, according to the producer, wasn't cutting it. And uh, the producer on this was um, David Tickle, who had worked with uh, Split Ends and. Um, Joe Cocker, the Divinals, um, Red Rider, if anybody remembers them, Lunatic Fringe. Mm, yep. And um, so they fired her while they were in the studio, which is a baller move right there. <laughs> exerting exerting power over the person who formed the band. Wow. Um, yeah, but they had so, to deal with Interscope at that time? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, they played a few gigs around. Um, they were... I didn't mention this, but they were from San Francisco. They were gigging around the bars. It's 91, I guess. And uh, they get scooped up put it, to put out the record in, um, in 92. And uh, Dawn isn't cutting it. So then they go to... Um, who it was wasn't the, Dawn. It was Shauna. Or sorry, Shauna. And then um, Shauna was replaced by... Roger Rocha, is that correct? Yeah. Rocha, 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 Rocha. And then at one point, Louis Meteori or Mi- Mito Yor 
I don't know how to it's 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 a weird last name. Sorry. Traditional uh moment of the show where I screw up a last name. Also played guitar. So they went through a number of guitarists, is what I'm saying for this band. The album came out, as I mentioned, October 13th, 1992 on Interscope, led by the single What's Up, which everybody knows. We don't even really need to uh, discuss it until we get to the review portion. The album went to number 13 in the U.S. on the strength of that signal and went to number four in Australia, number one in Germany, number one in New Zealand, number one in the Netherlands, number one in Sweden, number one in Switzerland. Number four in the UK, number 10 in Norway. It's platinum, gold, gold, gold everywhere. 1.5 million records sold. What's up? Only made it to number 14 in the US, number two in Australia, number one or all over the world or number two. And that went gold in the US as a single platinum and, and gold around the, around the world. It was followed up by Spaceman as a single. That did not chart in the US, it charted in other countries. No top 10 uh, charts for that. And then they had songs on three different soundtracks. They had a song on Wayne's World 2, which came out, or two soundtracks in a tribute album. Wayne's World 2, song called Mary's House. The Airhead soundtrack, they did a cover of Van Halen's I'm the One. And then the Encomium tribute to Led Zeppelin, they covered Misty Mountain Hop. That actually charted in Australia, that, their version of that song. So, and they did a video for it too, which it's crazy to think that in the 90s, if you were a hot band, not only were your albums getting singles, but if you contribute a song to a soundtrack or a compilation, you could get a video on MTV for that, covering Led Zeppelin. The Airhead soundtrack is 94, so they were still together for a couple of years after this record came out, huh? Yeah, apparently they were recording a second record um, in 94 which is may have been when they recorded the covers mm -hmm. and Perry was unhappy with how the first album had turned out and um, they were working and she just said, screw it and went solo in 1995. Since then, Linda Perry has <laughs> made a few hits. Um, they include hits for, um, Pink, Get the Party Started, Christina Aguilera's Beautiful, Gwen Stefani's What You Waiting For, um, Kelly Osbourne, Lisa Marie Presley, Kelly Osbourne again, Gwen Stefani, she wrote a song for Cheap Trick, more songs for Christina Aguilera, Alicia Keys, Christina Aguilera, Selena Dion, Ariana Grande, Miley Cyrus. She has a mansion, let's just put it that way. <laughs> Um, and we actually learned, if you go to our Kelly Scott interview from, like, I don't know, 2013, yeah. maybe? Yeah. If you look it up, he talks about being her session drummer. That's right. When she was recording with people like this, like, Christi he, I think he plays on a couple Christina Aguilera songs. So I, I became aware of the Pink connection because I saw an interview with Pink at one point in time where she talked about how she was a massive fan of the Four Non Blondes record. And that when she got into the industry and got to L.A., she went and looked up Linda Perry because she wanted to work with her. That's amazing. Interesting. Um, and then she's also, she's recorded solo um, 
material. She put out a solo album in flight in 1996 and after hours in 1999 and deer sounds as Linda Perry and Sarah Gilbert's deer sounds in 2015. I'm assuming that's, is that Sarah Gilbert from the Connors? Yes, I believe so. Interesting. That's her wife. They were married at one point. Oh, I did not know that. Yep. They have a, uh, I think a son together. Yeah, they are separated now as of 2019. That's fortunate because if they had been stuck together through the pandemic, I know a lot of relationships <laughs> did not, did not, did not go well. Uh, stuck together if you didn't like each other during the pandemic. Um, so let's get over to Patreon, which we'll share the results of the poll of Worthy Album, Better EP, or Decent Single at the end of the show from our patrons. But let's talk about the comments. And there were comments. This is a, shall we say, divisive album when it came to the comments. Um, it's not going to be a, uh, it's not going to be an, a, a, a very, it's not going to be a landslide. Let's put it that way. Uh, David Gorgo said, I tried, oh my God, did I try to listen to the whole album. I don't think he liked it. Uh, Ian McIver said, still forgettable, forgettable album like it was 30 years ago. Decent single. Hell Phillips said, I voted decent single not because of What's Up, but because of Superfly. That and maybe another song or two hint at the pretty good band that Four Non Blondes had the ability to be if only they had, I don't know, signed to a different label or something. Okay. Kyle Bittner said, I listened to this in full for the first time this week. Not good. It's got some strong vocals, but my oh my, was it boring. Decent single because What's Up is pretty much seared into my brain. Darren Lehman, I really tried to get this album, get into this album. It's just not my cup of tea. Strong vocals, but I think it has little else to offer. Jeff Gentis, another first-time listener. This is Blood Sugar Sex Magic if A, the lead singer, were technically more proficient and less sex-obsessed, and B, the songs themselves worse. I think you can get pretty more technically proficient <laughs> than Anthony Kiedis. <laughs> I don't know. On the technical proficiency, I think he's right. pretty down low. Yeah, I think a goat would be more technically proficient <laughs> at singing, exactly. to be honest. Um, Gavin said, think... Go oh, ahead. one last one. Gavin said, the $2 bin's most popular album, but it's still pretty good. So Gavin sort of... Um, you know, on the other side of the comments that were somewhat negative there. Eric, you were going to chime in. I was going to say the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers thing was was interesting until I thought about it. Uh, it does kind of have a um, late 80s kind of funk, not quite reggae kind of element to it that I, it's obviously there if you listen to it, but I didn't put it together with Chili Peppers. And then I thought like Fishbone or... 24-7 Spies or any of those kind of bands that were on the underground right before, you know, right before Nirvana, basically. Yeah, totally. I can hear that. It was like a late 80s, early 90s, like dab, like metal bands dab, or rock bands dabbling in funk that I could totally yeah. hear coming through on this record. Probably a little bit due to Living Color, right? Living Color and... Some no, I think more probably then. Fishbone oh, and Chili Peppers being uh, big mm -hmm. underground bands. That type gotcha. of bass playing too is on this record. You know, it's yeah. a very like 
poppy, uh, you know, slappy poppy kind of bass sound. Let's get into the record, Jay. Tell me one thing you liked about Bigger, Better, Faster, More by Four Non Blondes. Well, I think the obvious thing is the vocals are super strong. I guess I didn't remember her being such a strong singer. Um, I mean, listening to the single now, I can hear it. But I think at the time, you just heard it so much that you almost just, it became background noise. And I didn't really pay much attention um, to the performances. But I think this record is really a showcase of her singing. Uh, she got a ton of range, uh, incredible power. Uh, I think there's just some great vocal performances on it too, in terms of melodies that are really intricate and like dynamic, going high, going low, super emotional. Um, she uses her voice a lot to to build drama and tension. I mean, that whole, that second verse in "What's Up" is a great example of that. Um, and then uh, you know, "Drifting" is another example of that too, where she just is just belting over this acoustic uh track with with strings I can hear some of the songwriting craft as well. I mean, obviously, what's up? Each song, amazing melodies in that song, super hooky. <laughs> Everybody remembers it. But even like Dear Mr. President and Pleasantly Blue, there's there's some weird familiarity with the with the melodies she uses, but also not exactly able to place it. You know, it sounds you know, kind of classic rock genre familiar. Um, like I, I'm close to being able to pick out what song it is, but I can't quite get there. You know, it's kind of got that nice mix of you feel like you've heard it before, but you haven't, which I think probably is a a testament to later in her, her career writing so many hit songs. Is just, that's part of the magic is being able to, you know, write things that are familiar enough that people are comfortable with it, but also, you know, original and, um, and I, and I just think the way that she writes melodies is pretty sophisticated vocally. Um, could I just jump onto your, your last point there about yep. the, uh, things sounding familiar yep. in the song spaceman, it starts with the lyrics, starry night, bring me down. And I kept thinking, what is that? What is that? And then I realized that it reminded me of the song, um, star, a good morning Starshine" by Oliver from 1969, which is one of those kind of late 60s psych pop songs mm. that that we've all probably heard in passing in a certain point. yeah so I, I think i think you're picking up on the echo of that like psych pop early late 60s early 70s singer songwriter thing yeah like she's channeling these i suspect she's channeling these songs from the late 60s early 70s 
those melodies and they just kind of pop and you they sound familiar and you're like oh I, can't, I think i know what that is what is that and then it it's fleeting it moves on uh that happens happens quite a bit on the record so that, that's some of what i liked you know i think the, the vocal again is, is really the highlight you can hear like um that this this record almost becomes a showcase for her as a singer to me so what worked for you tim well, I agree with you there. This record is a showcase for her as a singer. I think in terms of what works best, I like her in up-tempo mode better, like on No Place Like like Home or um, Superfly. Like I want to hear her attacking the songs as, to, as opposed to being in a groove like and laying back. Um, I like when she's on top of it and, and spitting it out as opposed to bellowing. That doesn't work as well for me. Um, I do agree. Like, I mean, her as a vocalist, she's pretty impressive. Um, in a different space, she, you know, if this was 1970 or, you know, 78 or 81 or something like that, um, she would be challenging like Ann Wilson for like an insanely good vocal. Yeah. Um, so, and I agree with you, like, there's a weird amalgamation of all these like eighties and, and prior influences where you get like some elements of funk. Um, I read where like their first ever showcase show, you know how like bands back then would have to do like a showcase for radio stations or what have you. And they did one for the Gavin report and it was with Primus. And at first I was like, well, that's a weird combo. And then I, when I was like listening to this more and more, I was like, Oh, that kind of makes sense. They're in that like weird, you know, space where it's not just rock. They've got other elements that are happening here and they kind of bridge into that stranger aspect of the nineties, even though like you listen to what's up and you're like, Oh, this is just a strummy guitar song. And it's kind of a, a back and forth kind of campfire song. But then when you listen to the rest of the record, you're like, Oh, this is, this is a weird record. There's some weirdness happening here and you can definitely hear the the alternative mashing of of a lot of different sounds from that era um and i think eric you pointing out that they formed in 89 and were writing songs and like this is this could easily have been an eight, a late 80s alternative record as much as an i think the only thing that makes it sound 90s is the production like it's it's got clean early 90s production mm -hmm. as opposed to reverbed out late 80s production yeah um zora what works best for you on this record yeah i think um the vocals are definitely like the standout um they really grab your attention uh so much for that for a lot of the songs they were really all i was paying attention to because there's so much range and like she i definitely agree that this is just kind of an album for her to show off her like vocal talents they're really the star of the show i feel like um, for example, like in uh, What's Up was really the only song that I like could really hook up with the melody and it grabbed my attention a little bit equally to her vocals. But I think for sure the vocals were really strong. And I also like that there was a bit of, like you guys said, funk in a, some of the songs. Um, there were a few songs uh, like Old Mr. Heifer that had like a country element to them which I noticed. So I just like how there's a lot of like different 
genres, I feel, that were put together in this album. Trouble is a word that starts with a capital T. And I throw myself to the wood because I'm for king. Little and all, I'm certain circus style. It makes the trouble in me all worth the while. Susie walking hand in hand Well, I quickly caught up to you oh, what's the plan? That beer on the rise and bellies that ram the dogs Well, I barrel down my feet, and Susie, you forgot your clothes Yeah, they get, they get a little rockabilly on that one, don't they? <laughs> there is definitely an aspect. I, I'm glad you pointed that one out. And then on, is it Pleasantly Blue? Yep. It has that. Mm-hmm like just it's a blues riff i mean it is straight up blues song um (laughs) which you did not hear a lot of alternative bands digging into a a dirty dirgy blues riff or doing a a a rockabilly tune at this level like on an interscope level like sure there were underground bands that were doing that but the fact that they were elevating that to mainstream is an interesting decision so eric Tell us what works best for you picking this well, we, record. We've talked about the vocals, so I'm I'm gonna say that that is, you know, the number one thing. But I, I think to just to jump onto what you were talking about is the genre blending. I, I kind of think of it as alternative roots rock because there's definitely some folk in here and there's definitely blues. I mean, she's got a blues voice. I was trying to think about who are the obvious inspirations for the songs and the vocals. And you know, you think the indigo girls and you think. Janis Joplin and mm-hmm. you think um Tracy Chapman maybe with the the singer songwriter thing that was popular at this era. So I I think that it's those what I'll call roots rock which is the umbrella over all of that mixing with kind of the alternative college rock of uh definitely of that late 80s early 90s era and then making it very pop and accessible. I don't know that that there's a lot of stuff that was super challenging. I mean, yeah, there's some weird songs on this album, but none of them are so odd that that they're like Faith No More territory. Oh, no. No, it's more genre hopping yeah. than anything. You know, jumping they all from mixed together. Oh, right, right. They're not like, oh, this is the metal chorus followed by the, you know, the singer-songwriter, you know, lo-fi blues, you know, verse or something. Right. We should not and it's, it's not overly complicated, like a Mr. Bungle record or something. Yeah. And there's not, I mean, I guess there is some of the loud quiet of the, you know, that was big in that era, but it seems that because of her voice, she can transition very well between the quiet parts and the loud parts as, a, as opposed to it being a, you know, a quiet verse and a loud chorus or loud chorus and a quiet verse. Yeah, totally. I also think it, it does have a certain energy and moves along pretty quickly. You know, um, especially when I'm in the car and I'm playing this, which I do, you know, it, it spends a week in my CD player every six or eight months or whatever. It it just it just zips on by. It never drags. You know, and, uh, I, I, yeah, I would say this is 40 minutes. And we, we talk about this era where a lot of bands uh, just fill up that CD and 
this one they don't doesn't feel like they needed to. I want to tackle her vocal for a minute because uh, although the songs are not on the album, there's the Misty Mountain Hop cover, and you mentioned a lot of you know vocalists. I, I, I mean, the closest comparison in a lot of ways is Robert Plant in terms of the way that she can belt it out, and her Misty like that cover of Misty Mountain Hop. I just re-listened to that a day today. Is so good, and it's not just her. I mean, like the band sounds completely dialed in on that cover. And their cover of, of Van Halen's I'm the One is the same way. I mean, she sounds really good. And, um, but on the flip side, I did find at times that when there were quieter moments, I wanted her to be more restrained, and she was not as restrained as I would have liked her to have been. She gets really big in spots where I'm like, can we just calm it down just a little bit well I, I could see how her vocal could turn off certain listeners for certain listeners that vocal is absolutely not going to work and that's that's mm-hmm. fine i i just think that uh you know that if it works for you great and that's what's going to carry a lot of this along yeah i think that's that's your like yes or no with this band which to me i'm very sensitive to singers like i know if when i hear a band if i don't like the singer there's no going there's no working it out for me like the singer that's why i don't like dave matthews like once i heard the first time i heard dave matthews had nothing to do with like the vibe or the sound of the band i just did not like dave matthews vocal approach and now they were kind of like done for me so i can understand why people would be they hear that song what's up and they go well, that's way too big. Like, yeah, there's there's a there's an element of like theater in her vocal almost with the way sometimes she performs, which can be really interesting. You know, like when when Matt Bellamy would do it for early Muse songs, you'd be like, oh, this is cool. He's kind of doing a it's kind of doing a Freddie Mercury, Tom York thing. And now he does it. And you're like, I want to like slap him. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, years. what would this have been like if Jim Steinman had been the, uh, oh, man. the producer? Oh, I'm in for that. Oh, wow. <laughs> that would be amazing. I, I think um, I'm with you, Tim. It's interesting, though. I So for what didn't work for me is along this theme, because when they get faster or funky or bluesy, when the band is more active, um, I found they were conflicting with her singing and her just... um the power of her vocal and how much she was bringing vocally, there was this tension between the band and her when they slow down or strip down a little bit, that tension is relieved. And then I'm like, okay, well this now I understand what this band is about. It's about her belting these songs out um, and with a very powerful voice. And some people won't like, and some people will, it almost, when I listen to drifting, it almost reminds me of like, she gets really loud and like lots of words and like, pretty aggressive vocally even though it's a quieter song it started to make me think like oh it's kind of a maybe like an andy defranco kind of thing i was thinking more concrete blonde so that's that or that but i was like now but but at least like in those moments i was really getting like okay this is now gelling for me whereas when they were being funky and the bass is popping a lot and there's like you know wah wah guitar and then she's singing like really powerfully over that it was just 
too much. It was like those two things were conflicting. And I, I tend to like the second half of the record where they there's the songs are a little bit slower or stripped down or more strummy. Um, or even a song like Calling All the People, where uh it's more of like a has more of a party vibe. It's a little funner, it's a little more fun. You can kind of hear the pink songwriting maybe in that in that song. song in particular sounds like a stream made me think um oh this is a song andrew wood would sing yeah it well, i said extreme but it, i mean i don't think i don't think mother love bones far off from from that in certain respects they can wear those hats together yes <laughs> they can all wear goofy hats so it's funny yes. you would mention mention concrete blonde because what I'm holding up here is a couple of bootleg cassettes that I bought when I was at Michigan State back in 94, I'm guessing. One of them's a driving and crying one. The other one is a radio appearance by Concrete Blonde on one side and an audience recording of Four Non Blondes on the other side. So the guy I got this from said, oh, he recorded the Four Non Blondes himself. The, the other two were off of like radio live deals. But uh, as I haven't listened to it for a while, but I recall it's uh, it it sounds pretty good for a live uh, audience recording. But I think that not just because they both have the word blonde in their name, but Concrete Blonde is a good uh, a good band to talk about in relationship to or non blondes because they they're both coming out of California, late 80s into the early 90s. And to a certain degree, while they're neither is overtly political as far as endorsing a candidate or a party or anything like that, that both are in some ways talking about kind of the, the social things they see going on around them. And uh, like four non blondes, if Jeanette Napolitano's voice does not hook you into concrete blonde, you're, you're not going to be a fan. Right. Right. Zora, is there anything that doesn't work for you on this record? Yeah, I think for sure the main thing is just it's a hit or miss kind of record because if you don't like her tone of singing, then it's not going to be for you because her singing is kind of what carries it because for a lot of the songs, the singing draws you in. So if you don't like it, then it's kind of going to ruin the whole thing for you, I feel. And for some of it, um, she has a really powerful voice. So for a lot of the songs, since there's a lot of genre blending, some of the songs are a little bit more low key and they're less powerful, but she still sings it with a really loud, powerful voice. And sometimes that can drive you away, especially if kids my age, we all have pretty short attention spans. 
So for a lot of these songs, um, they're just a little boring because the melodies don't draw you in as much as her vocals do. And if the vocals aren't your thing, then you're just going to want to skip the song. I think that's a good point about the melodies, because I, I don't remember specifically like hooks in a lot of the songs. I just remember mm-hmm. moments of what her vocals were doing in With terms of like melodies, yeah. getting real big or mm-hmm. a particular phrase, but it wasn't necessarily a chorus. It was just the way that she used her vocal. Um, it, it, yeah, it's a, I, w- I was really interested going to the record for that reason wanting to see like could i hear the songwriter that was going to that was going to be here um that was that she was going to become um it was hard to find i mean what's up is obvious right i think there's moments on dear mr president or calling all the people there's like hooks here and there but the album overall the songwriting is it's not as clear and strong as she goes on to be known for well additionally what she goes on to be known for is is a totally not totally different but it's a pop genre yeah. rather than a more rock right. or blues yeah. or country or folk genre that has much clearer kinds of, of ideas and production and use of sound and use of hook and she's fitting into a band here right i mean she's being yeah. brought in at some point these songs uh, I think you said, Eric, some of them had been around since the late 80s that they had been working on. So yeah, sounds like she's well, and trying she to fit into that. All of them either. Yeah. Um, right. So for instance, um, let's see, which one is it here? Uh, Morphine and Chocolate is actually a, a Shauna Hall composition. And um, it was the original guitar player that they kicked out. Yes. Which I actually like that that drive in that song you know you're doing that like sort of halftime really dirgy heavy guitar sound which is cool except it's like almost five minutes and it doesn't really have a big payoff to that song which i kind of was hoping there would be um and then also it looks like there, there were some like group writings or or credits to like yeah. old mr heifer and calling all the people like everybody's got a credit there's also a person katrina serdovsky who's credited on superfly but that person is not listed in the band or in any of the credits so maybe that was a friend who like contributed some lyrics or something but i don't know i don't know what the story is Uh, i think perry solo wrote five songs and then everything else was either a collaboration or somebody else wrote it um so yeah like uh, in terms of what doesn't work for me i already mentioned like i feel like her vocal is like hit or miss depending on the song and doesn't doesn't carry the album in the way that a, a maybe a lesser singer but with more focus on melody would um there's just like just not enough memorable things for me exactly. in the in her yeah. vocal. And I feel like, okay, well, you could balance that by doing something really memorable with the music. But a lot of times, like, I mean, like Pleasantly Blue, like I learned to play that riff when I first picked up a guitar. Like that dun 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 da 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 dun. Like that's that's about as basic a guitar riff yeah. as you ever learn 
to play, which yeah. is still a cool guitar riff, but like then do something amazing over top of it. If you're going to do something so basic, you, you better balance it out with something amazing. Yeah. Well, I think what you're hitting on the band sounds like a really, really good local band with an amazing singer. Yes. Mm-hmm. When I listen to it, you know, it's like, very good playing you can tell these people play a long time um they know their instrument super skilled but it's almost like too genre specific at times like you just said tim like okay that's a standard blues riff that maybe you'd hear a band play in a bar Mm -hmm. um and then you've got this singer that's just a powerhouse like oh my god this person's like on a, in a different planet than the rest of the band. I, I think that comes across on the record too. So, so if this was a, like a Nashville record from like 1970, that they would have like a Stevie Ray Vaughan level, like blues player come in and play on, you know, the backing track yeah. or whatever. There'd also be some clavinet. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it, the point is, is that, you know, you get the, the really good local band. That's a unit compared yeah. to like the top studio musician. Right. So I, I could see that. And, you know, reading about some of the issues with the, the production of the album, I, I really wonder how much of that plays into this as opposed to the issue being the the, the playing or the songwriting. Who yeah, was the I mean, producer again? David Tickle, who worked with, oh, Adam Ant, um, hmm. Red Rider, Split Ends. That's right. Okay. Tito and Tarantula. <laughs> he did Eric Johnson's 1986 album Tones, which came out just before Avia Musicom, which everybody knows is the best Eric Johnson album. Features the single Cliffs of Dover. Also worked with Joe Cocker and Tony Childs and Belinda Carlisle. Look at those names. Those are some names. But they has got this, credits. But they're all very glossy. Yeah. Yeah. So this this might fall into uh what I call the Lords of the New Church problem. Are you familiar with Lords of the New Church? I believe that was the band after the Dead Boys. Sort of. Um, or Stiff Baders from the Dead Boys, a couple of guys from The Damned, and Sham 69 doing kind of a a new wave, power pop, gothy kind of a band. Um, okay. They were a great band, but the, the records are so badly produced hmm. that you, you wonder what they would sound like if, you know, they were a little dirtier, a little less clean, a little less gated drums, a little less, you know, sterile. Yeah. And so when it comes to a band like Four Non Blondes, and when this record must have been recorded, I'm wondering about, was anybody saying, why don't we just, you know, let a little more grit into this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little more sloppiness and looseness. And if the guitar player isn't cutting it and they fire the guitar player, that kind of says to me that oh they want something that's a lot more maybe pristine than you know the, than a blues record yeah or a folk record need to be i agree it's in this uh, nether world of sounding like a a band like a cohesive band but not being great enough to feel like a cohesive band it's like it's a, a little too polished or not quite polished enough. Uh, it, uh, more polished enough would be like a producer saying, "Like, hey guys, let's tone back a little bit. Let's really like support the song here and let let Linda, you know, voice come out and 
kind of get rid of the competing elements and really make it more pop would be another way to take it. Well, it's to um, the point kind of, of in this middle space, her being unhappy with how this record turned out. I wonder if that's about the production. Yeah. Yes. I think it, that was a lot of it. In addition to become a songwriter, she becomes a producer. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Cause she's worked with as a, as a producer, um, bands like Weezer, she worked with KT Tunstall. Um, who else was there? There were other people that are not even like, not even songwriting, but just like producing, yeah. producing records for me. I think I would have been interested or I would be interested to hear her like completely genre specific. Like I want to hear her doing a blues album, like straight mm-hmm. up, just get a really awesome blues player and like, and not an Eric Clapton. I don't want like a collab like that. I want like, like get Gary Clark Jr. and her together and see what they can do. <laughs> um, you know, someone who's got, doesn't have to be an old, you know, and definitely not Joe bon- Bonamassa. <laughs> uh you know just get somebody who's got some grit and some but understands that or i would she produced a song with um george clinton and like and did a like a parliament funkadelic song with them like i want to hear that like what would she sound like in a legit funk band yeah with because then she can just sort of like completely express <laughs> that use that vocal to to 110 percent um so one one of the to that point, one of the questions I kept thinking about this is the band is if they had lasted, would they have played Lilith Fair? Because they definitely oh. have that folk element. Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, I mean, that would have been like what ninety six was that the first Lilith Fair? Something so, in there, something in there. Yeah, I mean, if they had just lasted another couple of years, I I get, guarantee, yeah, they would have been on, unless something went terribly wrong with that second record. And they made like a metal album or something, you know, like it wouldn't fit. This is our boy stylistically, but this album would have been fine for that, for that, uh, audience, uh, final thought. Anybody got any final thoughts before we go to our ratings? Any additional notes? You're all set. I just, one thing I ran across, um, that we didn't really talk about was, um, the guy that wrote semi charm life stephen jenkins for a third eye blind yes. was quoted in the the i think the wikipedia is saying that uh he was around when when she was writing uh what what's up and that he kind of heard that it was he could hear the the genesis of a massive hit in there and i i think that you know locating that song in that kind of pop alternative uh space of a band like third eye blind kind of moves it away from trying to and i as i recall third eye blind was maybe 90 what 94 95 somewhere in there I that's that, what my memory is but yeah because the second album came out in like 97 right sure so that maybe this this record was ahead of its time as far as some of the more pop elements the kind of catching people's oh, no. ears we're wrong 97 was the first record Oh, okay. Ninety nine was the second record. Okay, so so maybe maybe it's kind of the the and maybe that makes sense. Then that you know she would work well with Pink when the you know everything kind of went to that end of pop. Yeah. Well, that makes yeah because Stephen Jenkins, 
was not young when that happened. Like he had started in bands when he was like in 83 or something like that. Um, I think we probably covered this on the third eye blind blue sophomore slump revisited album uh, episode. So let's get into our overall. I just got, sorry. I got one more thing, which is, um, so pitchfork put out its, um, list of the best albums of the nineties. This did not make the best albums of the nineties. However, What's Up did make their best songs of the 90s at really number 212. My gosh. So out of how, how can you make how long it was the list? Five, like 250, I think. How can you make a list of 250 of anything? It's pitchfork. <laughs> it's, like, it's all for, it's all for clicks, Jay. You know, I mean, after works. 20, I mean, yeah, at this point, you're just making things up. And so so the review, which I can only read half of on my screen, does say built around the vocal performance so huge it nearly swallows the song's jangly guitar riff. Yeah. Um, I mean, at this point, is Pitchfork even relevant? (laughs) You saw who they put at number one for their albums in the 90s, so... Or I should say, more importantly, who they put at number 10. Who was? I don't remember. That was uh, Nevermind. Was that number oh, okay. 10? <laughs> that's right. They were being contrarian. Yeah, they put Hole above Nirvana. Anyway, that's a different oh, rant. Oh, my God. You know, it is, uh, I guess, the remarkable, now that I'm thinking of it, that she doesn't have more of a career as a singer. I, that's all we've talked about in this podcast, and mm-hmm. she's known as a songwriter and producer. And yes, a singer on one song. But other than that song, the, the world does not know her as a singer. That is. A little odd mm-hmm, because for this album she really is like the whole thing right yes she's so upfront. You, exactly. you it's not this is not my bloody valentine you're not going to miss the singer in this one exactly it's not, it's not uh, obviously that was a choice she made because i think she probably could have been mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh you know a successful singer or artist mm-hmm. solo artist so there were two solo records and i only got the first one and I don't remember it at all. I sold yeah. it off long ago. It didn't leave an impression on me at all. So mm-hmm. maybe it's one of those things where despite the fact we're saying that her vocals are overriding everything that that she really did need some kind of band that was going to going to keep those at least some part in check or inspired or create some kind of dynamic that was going to bring that that energy and the um what the 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 passion to the front little mm-hmm. he's a little constraint or conflict in there to make it work right. so let's talk ratings where the album better ep decent single where do you land jay i'm landing at an ep i really like the pretty much the whole second half of the album. So starting with Spaceman, Calling All the People, Dear Mr. President, and Drifting. Uh, I think Calling All the People is the best, to me, the most dumb tempo song that, that connects the best. And then those other three are slower, along with What's Up, obviously. I'm a sucker for this for this um, campfire strum-alongs. Um, you are, it's and weird. And acoustic what songs happened? with like cello in them. I just, I always love that. Um, 
and they showcase they kind of those songs i think get out of the way a little bit and just let it let you either like her voice or not so i'm in an ep where'd you end up tim yeah i'm also at an ep um like i said i like the up-tempo stuff i like when there's more happening from uh the tempo end so i'd probably do superfly calling all the people in a place like home um train i like i like some aspects of train i like the the build in that song and stuff um so i'll probably get a four song ep zora where do you land where the album better ep or decent single decent single is what i said whoa coming in harsh on the first one <laughs> yeah no um i would say that the single was what's up probably guessed it because honestly i just think that Pretty much all the other songs, I would call them skippable, just because I think for me, what makes a song good is if it's catchy. None of the song, I can't really remember any of the melodies from any of the songs other than What's Up, simply because they're just kind of basic and it really rides on the vocals. So I think she has really awesome vocals, and I'd like to see more like catchy songs with those vocals. I would definitely listen to those, but yeah, decent single. I think you need to listen to the Pink album then. Are you? I think you have. Yeah, mom okay. definitely has a lot of Pink songs on her playlist. I think it sounds like she's co-wrote and co-wrote a lot of those songs. Though. Oh, for half a second, I thought you were talking about the Pink album by uh, Sunny Day Real Estate. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> why? <laughs> no, 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 Pink. The Pink album. That's it's misunderstood, isn't it? Isn't the name of the uh, the title of that record? There's a Z instead of an S. It's very, it's very uh, edgy. <laughs> well, no chill from Z. For dropping bombs with a decent <laughs> single on her first review. Wow, this is going in the archives. On the so, other end. It should be no shock. I think this is a worthy album. It's something I've always enjoyed and I've liked since it came out. Um, plenty of other albums that I've flirted with along the way have fallen to the wayside. I mean, I, I understand where, where everyone's coming from. I just, for me, you know, there is a certain amount of nostalgia, but there's also kind of hits all the stuff that I like from, um, you know, the kind of blues vocals to the folky stuff. Um, it's not punk. It's not Riot Girl, It's not grunge, but it's, you know, 100% alternative. I can't think of too many other bands from the era that that are like this that had as big an impact and uh you know like i've been listening to this record for years and it was only the last week that i was like wait a minute that could be a mother love bone song or wait a minute that song is like sounds like that oliver song or me spending 20 minutes trying to figure out what some some passage reminds me of so i also think uh a lot of people never listened to this record back in the day and that the automatic dismissal of, you know, the band and the record is rooted in their dislike of the one single. Yeah, I, I, it's polarizing. It's polarizing. I, I think this is also a record that could grow. I, I know I, I, I'm picking up things the more mm -hmm. I listen to it. There's a lot going on with, between the vocal 
um well mostly because the vocal but also the band and um some of the hooks take a little while to get to um they're hard to initially kind of pick up the melodies but once you start to pick them up uh the songs become more familiar and i found myself in, enjoying it more the more i listened to it so i could see this being like song if you've got it in a cd player and you're listening to it all the time i could totally get that becoming mo- much more familiar and it working a lot better i think for the um some a lot of the songs the like more catchy or the hook parts are later in the song so by the point you get to it you've probably already skipped the song because it's not gonna for me at least it doesn't like make me want to listen to it and wait for it so i feel like if you just come at us with a great melody then it's definitely going to hook people in more yeah well, it was the, the 90s the... we had two minute long intros uh yeah um <laughs> so tease tease for a year from now uh the album i'm going to pick next time has one song that's got a, a minute and a half of just tablas playing before you get to the song <laughs> okay. awesome. but speaking of intros one of the things i also wanted to point out that we talked a little bit about on the nirvana episode is this is yet another 90s album where the intro is is kind of a harmonica mm-hmm. and then you don't really get that kind of stripped down bluesy harmonica by itself again in the album right. just like how um nevermind starts with that strummy guitar and um 10 starts with that kind of of ambient like chain clacking sound or uh, before you get into to the music mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've got a mental list now of albums that start off with, you know, 10 seconds of something that sounds nothing like the rest of the album. That harmonica is featured on that whole song. It's yeah. kind of funny now you're mentioning it. It's like, wow, this could be a heavy harmonica record. And then you never hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Eric, thank you for bringing this to us. I feel like this is an essential to talk about when it comes to the 90s because of how big What's Up was. So I'm glad we got to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I think that no matter what you think of it, the, the fact that that song still has a life. Oh, and yeah. And that this band had one album and had the kind of, um, you know, hate and dismissal thrown at them really means that maybe it's something that people should be talking about and questioning why why the reaction was the way it was or still is. And you will definitely see it if you go to a record store and flip to the oh yeah, the $2 CD bin. So. Yeah, except those $2 bins are going up. You know why? Inflation. You know why? <laughs> Tell us, educate us, why? I don't know. I actually failed most of my <laughs> economics classes. Nobody <laughs> can actually explain that, that, that answer. I think it has it, something to do with a pipeline and a pandemic. And, and um, there was a, a votes. I'm not sure. Anyway, Zorth, congratulations on your first appearance. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I hope we haven't exceeded your bedtime. I don't know what time you do. I don't know. No, it's a we're good. I've got like and... three hours. <laughs> three hours? What? It's, what kind of? What are you running over there? Like you got an hour, hours. kid. What are you talking about? Oh, o'clock. it's Texas. They're like three hours behind. So <laughs> where we're Tim and I are. Three hours and 50 years. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's let the folks at home uh, who are listening, maybe for the you first time. You didn't tell what the poll was on Patreon. Oh, crap. Oh, yeah. oh, you're right. I didn't. 
and I just closed that. Well, tab. shocking no one. There, tell us. I don't have it up. Uh, oh, I, I do. I, I have it up. Have okay, it up. What's his, what is it, Jay? Uh, 13% worthy album, 25% better EP, 63% agree with Zora, decent single. Looks like wow. I'm in the majority. So so is, is that <laughs> the lowest rated album that's ever been in the poll like that? Oh, man. Um, I don't know. Boy, I wish Patreon could help us like consolidate all those. There's got to be one that's that's. Is it Animal Bag? <laughs> that's in the ballpark, maybe. <laughs> wow, the people have have rallied behind Zora. There, Jay, you're gonna get you're gonna get Maximist here. You're gonna like the crowd's gonna be like thumbs down, <laughs> and all of a sudden that plucky gladiator coming up uh, from uh, from down below is gonna kick you off your throne. <laughs> Better be ready. I'm ready. Also, this is great because once we get um, Nina on board, then we can go on vacation for real. (laughs) (laughs) We've done this for 12 years. We have never missed an episode. Let us both just take a week off. (laughs) Let the understudies, uh, you know, you know, when when a Broadway show goes on the road, it's not the lead performers every single time. Sometimes you see the understudy at the two o'clock matinee on Saturday. That's all right. You got to get their chance to shine. Uh, so great job. Great job, Zora. Um, Thank you. For the folks at home, if you enjoyed this episode, you can support us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Join the Dig Me Out Union. And you get to vote in polls like this when albums are suggested by our patrons and also in our monthly tournament. Three rounds of nine, two winners from each round. They fall into a a death match of six gladiators entering entering the arena. Always a mixed bag of of records. Sometimes you get stuff you have never heard of, and sometimes you get stuff that like, why did you even bother? Everybody's already heard this record a thousand times, but you never know because sometimes the weird stuff wins. And uh, we're happy when that does, because we probably haven't heard it, as opposed to suggesting, you know, Bad Motorfinger or something, which we've heard a few times. So you can go and join us at Patreon. It's also where you can uh, read the Box newsletter, which comes out every week. Two new reviews of releases, of uh, album releases, uh, TV shows, documentaries, books related to 80s and 90s music. We give you one minute reviews every week, as well as a release calendar of all the stuff that's come out that you might be interested in. Also at digmeoutpodcast.com, you can sign up for that and suggest an album for our monthly suggestion uh, tournament, which Zora manages via her database management skills. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, Apple Podcast is where you go to give some positive feedback. Five stars. Just like, uh, just like when you have a good meal and you go to Yelp and you're like, everything was delicious, clean bathrooms, easy parking, all the things you, that I use to decide whether I'm going to leave the house. Clean bathrooms, easy parking. <laughs> if I have to walk yeah. more than 17 steps, I am not entering your place, your location. 17 right. is my max. 
For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Dig me out.